Hey guys, this is Dan Sawyer, just wanting to alert you to the fact that the story episode is late again this week, um, even though I promised to have it on time. Getting uh, original music recorded for it, and I got it to the composer late, so um, it'll be a few days late, but if it's uh, later than Sunday, you'll just get two episodes next week. Sorry about the delay, but now I present you with the next Dealing In. It's break time! Artistic Whispers Productions presents... Antithesis Book One, Predestination, and Other Games of Chance. A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net. With original music by Danny Shade. This story contains harsh language, sexual situations. Listener discretion is advised. And now... We are now, once again, recording... Dealing In, Episode 6, Part 2 of 2. This is a long one, guys. It's about an hour and 20 minutes. Hello, 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 and welcome to Episode 6 of Dealing In. Dealing In is the feedback show for the fiction of me, J. Daniel Sawyer. The current novel, Predestination, is a serial that has a lot of suspense and turns on surprises. If you have not listened up through Episode 17, stop! Wait! No! Go back and listen now. Heavy spoilers will be covered in the following news and feedback. And with me tonight is Chris Lester of the Metamore City Podcast. Hey gang, good to be back. And Kitty Nakian, who plays Hera Flea, daughter of Heretic on the Polly's Cosmetic Reprobates Hour, and is the co-producer of Antithesis. Meow. Okay, I've got a feedback from Zach Moore on Cold Duty, who says, mm. Great stuff. I guessed right after the heart-to-heart between Jamie and Sean. I didn't buy into the emotional connection with Charlotte at the beginning, but the ending punched me right in the gut and made me misty. Go figure. Best Excellent. wishes for the holidays. I love that ending. Thank you. I loved that story. Uh, if you guys, any of you haven't heard it, uh, you can find it on clonepod.org. The story is Cold Duty. It was my Christmas story for Steampod and Clonepod. It's about a farm boy in Victorian England who inherits a chemical factory and a very unusual destiny. All right. And I've got a feedback from Legion. Um, okay. He said. This person says, Dan, with regards to the email Lunar Shadows sent in, here's hoping that this email will cause the dealing in episodes to eclipse the event horizon, causing the start of, for back of a better term, an infinite loop of listener feedback, causing more listener feedback, listening to more f- listener feedback on the listener feedback, and so on and so forth. Many thanks, Legion. P.S. I love your work. You've got yet another junkie over here tapping his vein and jonesing for his next fix. Hurry up. Excellent. From Chris Booth, Predestination 17, not a death threat, maybe an attaboy. Dan, sorry to hear about all the problems you've been having with the podcast, but I came to it so late that I haven't been plagued by the unscheduled hiatuses. I'm really enjoying the twisty little passages. Is it true that all writers write what they know? If so, then your mind must be quite astonishingly baroque. (laughs) Or baroquen. If it ain't Baroquen, don't fix it. How do you know when it is Baroque? When you are out of Monet. You bastard. I'd hit hit him with this microphone, but it would cause really weird feedback sounds and (laughs) probably break the listener's ear, so I'm not going to do it. Speaking of really weird feedback sounds. (laughs) More feedback? More feedback. (laughs) 
But that wasn't my real question. In this latest episode, Bill Shelley announced that he was going to propose a bill to close down all the Earth-facing lunar sites oh. so that they couldn't lob rocks from them at the Earth. Oh, I was hoping no one caught that. I think that <laughs> Bill must have a poor grasp of ballistics if he thinks that it would be impossible to lob a rock from the far side of the moon down to onto the Earth. I'll I'll no... do you one better. It's actually easier to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am no expert, to be sure, but it seems to me that all you have to do is get a rock out of the moon's gravity well and into the Earth's own gravity well, which is a whole lot bigger, to guarantee a direct hit. It might be trickier to compute a trajectory to hit any particular point on the Earth, but I doubt very much that it would be beyond the sort of civilization that can establish multiple lunar colonies. Actually, it's not even beyond the sort of civilization that can build the pyramids. (laughs) We've had the ability to do trigonometry like that since... Well, since the ancient Egyptians, but they never actually used it for anything. But at least since the ancient Greeks mm. developed it fully. And, um, oh, man. Yeah, that was a big fuck up on my part. And I knew it when I was writing it, and I made a mental note to come back and revise it. Mm. Didn't make a note in the text. And then I went and read it and recorded it. And just as I was getting done editing it, I realized that it was still there. Oh, great. And... At that point, um, taking that out would have uh, screwed up the rhythm and cadence of the speech. So I left it in, hoping that no one would notice. And, of course, several people did. They always notice. They always notice. They, you caught me out, man, and um, hey. that I've got nothing else to say about that. I'm guilty as charged. <laughs> he- I know enough about orbital mechanics to know better. I thought the official um, explanation was going to be Bill Shelley's an idiot. No, see, Bill Shelley's not an idiot. Of course, he could be. He could be demagoguing. Yeah, Chris. Chris goes on to say, now Bill might actually know all this himself, and he's simply pandering to the ignorance of the masses, which has occurred to me. If that's the case, I have to ask myself what he could hope to gain by that. Perhaps he thinks that it would be possible to do some rock lobbing from the far side on his own account and blame it on the Lunarians because he couldn't be seen from Earth. But it's also possible to back project a ballistic trajectory to find the launch point, which could give the Lunarians a let out. I don't know. Twisty little passages and all that. <laughs> Would you care to clarify? See above, re fuck up. Yeah, yeah. See above, re fuck up. Now, actually, it, I may keep it there because as a piece of political demagogy, it actually could work well with the overall plot of what Shelley's up to. Particularly if deep down he really does want the lunars, the, the loonies to have their independence. If that's the case, yeah. Right. Um, so I may actually wind up keeping that for the final, but if I do, I will um, I will have to couch it in some uh, context um, mm-hmm. otherwise because I don't want it to look like the fuck up it is. <laughs> <laughs> he goes on to say, that was probably a stupid question. Nope, it wasn't. You got me. If there's one thing that we've learned about your attitude to clarifying the future of the story, it is that you won't do it. Oh, well, gloat away then. I can take it. (laughs) No, I won't do it, but I will clarify, yes, I screwed up. (laughs) Thanks for the story. It has been a long time now since I watched much TV or listened to much radio, and the responsibility is almost entirely down to podcasts like yours. All the best, Chris. Thank you very much, Chris. That was fabulous. Okay, and we got um, feedback from... Terminus Fox. And Excellent. Regular on the Metamore City show. Okay. Um, he says, I loved Cold Duty. Say, doesn't Stephen Kilbride 
interview podcast authors on his tea and chat show. You two ought to get together for some cross promotion. Yes, on- he does, and I'm scheduled to go on tea and chat when it comes off hiatus. Awesome. Honestly, I'm a big fan of tea and chat and clone pod. Now I'm subscribing to Sculpting God and Antithesis One. Thank you for all the great stories. You're very welcome. I'm glad you enjoyed Cold Duty, and I hope you're enjoying the rest. I'll have to insert that I really loved Cold Duty. Oh, thank you. Subject, the ubiquitous Tristan Strikes Again from Tristan Johnson. (laughs) Hey, Dan, Tristan here yet again with another antithesis question that might lead to another fun tangent. Seriously, that last feedback show was nearly made for me. I felt a bit too much like a crack-addicted metamorph monkey. Okay, so on to the question. In antithesis, so far, I have noticed a lack of transhumans. Now, I know that the group of you are all very well-informed and well-read and know what transhumanism is, but for the sake of ease, in case I'm wrong, it is the concept of looking at technology and its possibilities of becoming more integrated and to a point possibly enhancing or replacing our biology. Transhumanists are basically a bunch of nerdy thinkers who look at scientific fields like nanotech, biotech, and cybernetics. Yes, it is a real field of science. These fields are coming to a point where they are not only curing a lot of human ailments, but showing promise to enhance the human the human condition. Examples would be tissue-repairing nanobots, enhanced memory brain chips, and genetic engineering of future generations. In my universe, I have pe- the people who embrace these technologies kind of disappear to a far-off planet to be in techno-harmony on their own, and they are eventually are able to relate better with the societies of AIs who did much the same. In my universe, they are so mentally unstable mentally unable to effectively communicate with the unaltered majority of humans that they just give up on each other and decide to peacefully coexist apart from each other. My question for you to blow my mind with is where did these technologies go in the time period of antithesis? I'd be interested to hear what you think on the topic as well. Your crack-addicted monkey, Tristan. P.S. Is it just me, or is the food in predestination really sexy? P.P.S. <laughs> Tell me again about Chris's forget-me-not blue eyes. <laughs> Kitty, why don't you take up the point about Chris's forget-me-not blue eyes? He takes off his glasses and gazes into her eyes. They are kind of bluish. Yeah. <laughs> that was a ringing endorsement. Thank you, Kitty. <laughs> um, yes, the food in Antithesis is very sexy. I am a enthusiastic cook of many different ethnic cuisines. And um, actually, Kitty and I got together partly because she was teaching me how to be a foodie. So I have some very sexy memories associated with food. The uh, <laughs> She's waggling her eyebrows. On the uh, point of transhumanism, there are two transhumans in the story already. There will be more. It becomes very important to the plot of book two. It is relevant to the plot of book one, and we will find out at least who one of them is before the end. Um, as far as the rest of it goes, see my, uh, see my discourse to Patty Heaney, where I talked about the piecemeal adoption of singularity technologies by a fragmented marketplace. Okay, and here we have one from Sister Little Bunny. It's a um, blog comment to episode 15. It says, Color Me Happy, we got back from lunch and I found my iTunes downloading this episode. The ending had me falling out of my chair almost literally. I cannot wait to see how this plays out. Keep up the great work. Yeah, I hope you're having fun with the uh, with the um, with the new episodes. I certainly am. It's I get I'm getting so excited because all the threads are starting to come together. <laughs> Next, from David Dzwirik, 
Subject. Canucks are not like Yanks. <laughs> I knew I'd get shit for that. Hi, Dan. As an expat, but still mighty proud Canadian, I must take exception to your dealing in comments to the criticizing feedback you received about the United States of North America from a Canuck. Please keep in mind that this note is partially tongue-in-cheek. <clears throat> Sorry, Dan. I'm sure other Canadians who listen to your excellent work think your answer that your answer is typically for an American, both arrogant and ignorant in relation to Canada and its differences with the U.S., Canadians, famously the mouse sleeping beside an elephant, are much more aware and knowledgeable of the U.S. than the reverse. By the way, well, yeah, that's because you have to be aware of what America is doing. <laughs> Everybody has to be, whether they like it or not. I'm not proud. It's just the way that it is. By the way, you are an American since the name of your country is the United States of America. Canadians are Canadians, since our country is called Canada, not Canada of America. Yes, but you are still North Americans. And if you yes. go to Mexico, you will find that us and you are all called Norte Americanos. Yes. Because they just don't see that big a difference. <laughs> yes, we are, we are all North Americans. And technically, actually, we here in the United States are United States citizens. Mm-hmm. We are called Americans uh, as shorthand, and then once we became the United States of America, it um, eventually got shortened to that. But And also, I should point out that, technically speaking, the individual states are the political entities that are of relevance. Yes. So if you really needed a place name for us, we should be Californians or Michiganians or Nevadans right. or whatever. True, true. All right, moving on. Anyway, to give you your due, your comment that culturally the differences within the U.S. are huge is right on. I have traveled, both for pleasure and business, throughout your great land, and the diversity of peoples geographically is amazing. And I agree that there is probably more in common between Canadians and some Americans culturally than between some Americans and their fellows. Which was exactly the point I was trying to make. No more or n and no less. However, when it comes to values, we are very, very different. Just one example underlines it. In the U.S., the right to bear arms is sacrosanct. In Canada, your gun culture is considered crazy and dangerous and is certainly not a right. We, on the other hand, believe that the right to act free access to health care is sacrosanct. You alone in the Western world do not. Yet you spend more on health care, 15.3% of GDP versus 9.9% for Canada, link, and yet have lower life expectancies, perhaps due to the unholy combo of the rights to guns but no rights to medical care, <laughs> than we enjoy. No, like, here we got, here, here I have to stop. There is universal access to health care in quite a few states in the Union. It's simply not a national thing. Um, California is a state that has universal access to emergency health care and actually to all health care if you know how to game the system properly. It's not like the British NHS or the Canadian National Health Service. But then again, the British NHS and the Canadian National Health Service also have private practice doctors running alongside to take care of what the National Health Service can't. Or won't. Or won't. For the sake of prioritizing. Yeah, for the sake of prioritizing. Each system has their great advantages and their great disadvantages. However, the disparity between the United States and the other Western nations with regards to lifespan is uh, due to something that a lot of people forget about. It's the Civil War and the Reconstruction. Post-Civil War era... 
the Northerners got it into their heads that they wanted to punish the southern states. They punished them by for enforcing trade tariffs on them, by bankrupting them, by freeing the slaves without paying the slave owners. The only time in history that's ever been done. Caused massive amounts of bad blood, bankrupted the southern economy, and put the south into a state of perpetual misery and ignorance and um, made them very susceptible to plague and other things, plague and pellagra and whatnot. And the legacy of Reconstruction, which is one of the worst things any United States uh, dwellers ever did to another right next to the Indian Wars— absolutely disgraceful legacy. The legacy of that carries on to today, and the the um, life expectancy in southern states is still radically shorter than it is in northern states, except for areas that in the last 20 years have started to develop and modernize. And because we are a large coalition of small states, we get that factored in. If you compare economically and culturally similar areas of Canada to the U.S. or of the U.S. to the U.K., we come out looking very, very good. Say if you um, compare the life expectancy of Californians and New Yorkers to Canada. Mm -hmm. Californians, Californians, New New Yorkers, New Englanders, um, even uh, some of the northern industrial states like Illinois and and, uh, Michigan. Um, or oh, Michigan's te- got an excellent healthcare yeah. network. Or Texas. Um, mm-hmm. Texas is, at, despite all the crazy things you hear about Texas, many of which are true, <laughs> Texas is economically a very healthy state now. It wasn't 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. It is now. North Carolina, too. North Carolina and Atlanta in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Major changes in Atlanta in the last 20 years. And in the last 10 years, Georgia's mm-hmm. become a very economically nice place to live. Mm-hmm. Even Alabama is starting to pick things up. Yeah, it's They're... really cool. It, it's great to see the South finally coming back online and joining the 21st century. Yes. And um, if there was one thing I could go in a time machine and go back into history and do, it would be to stop Reconstruction. Yeah. Um, because that's one of the reasons that we still have race problems in the United States as well. And if you want to credit anyone for that particular fuck up in history you can claim thank you the republican party yeah yep that's true <laughs> but anyway um i had to had to stop and uh, and respond to that please okay. continue he continues further examples abound the role of the abortion debate in your politics amazes us an issue in which <laughs> we <it> should <laughs> an issue in which we too have strong internal personal disagreements but not political and the status quo seems to be holding the death penalty is another example, something you share with Saudi Arabia and Iran, but not with <laughs> Canada and Western Europe, which have lower violent crime rates, lower murder rates, and no death penalties. A last <laughs> example is the difference between the U.S. model of the melting pot versus ours of multiculturalism. Right, uh, wait, wait for the melting pot thing here, because those other three are actually also directly related to Reconstruction. Um, in the mid-20th century, the Republican Party started to lose ground to the Northern Democrats at the same time when the Dixiecrats, the Southern Democratic Party, well, who became the religious right, were becoming disenchanted with the North's program of civil rights and desegregation. Mm -hmm. It should be noted that the reason that the Democrats were so politically powerful in the South for so long is because of the Republicans screwing them over in Reconstruction. Reconstruction. That's right. There was a a group called the Yellow Dog Democrats. Um, They were called that because they they would say, I'd vote for a yellow dog before I voted for anyone but a Democrat. Because of that, when, um, 
when the civil rights movement came through, a bunch of the Dixiecrats defected. And the Dixiecrats were rural. Strom Thurmond. <laughs> yeah, like Strom, Strom, Strom Thurmond and, uh, and uh, oh, what's his name, Bird. Oh, you Robert, Robert Bird. Bird. But he's a Democrat. He, he remained a Democrat, mm-hmm. but um, he voted across the aisle a lot. Mm-hmm. The uh, an, a radical contingent of the Republican Party saw a way to get a lot of voters by building a primarily religious base for the Republican Party, and over the course of the seventies, they secured um, the seventies, and then particularly in wake of the Carter administration, yeah, they secured the support of Southern values voters on the basis of issues like the death penalty and abortion and opposition to the Equal Rights Amendment for Women. And the drug war. And the drug war. And um, this... and anything protecting against gays getting equal rights. Right. Although that came later. Um, basically, they played on the innate xenophobia, in some ways very justifiable xenophobia, of the southern states who had been screwed over by the North for so long, mm-hmm. and parlayed that into uh, great political strength and created these national controversies where before there hadn't been any. Um Americans have always been marginally, barely comfortable with the death penalty. It's been illegal in the United States a few times. It always keeps coming back to being legal. But a very small percentage of the population actually likes it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also worth noting that it didn't become illegal in Western Europe until the 60s, mm-hmm. which is when a lot of things uh, changed around the world but that's the reason we still have that problem going on and um knowing this history explains a lot about the bush presidency about its devotion to ideology over evidence which it trumpeted very loudly (laughs) because that was the political power base upon which it was built a last example is the difference between the u.s model of the melting pot versus ours of multiculturalism which has arguably made a more stable peaceful society um Quebec, anyone? Yeah. <laughs> or the French riots, uh, the Islamic riots in France and Denmark. You don't see those things that happen here. Mm-hmm. Or um, the banning of school of religious symbols in, uh, in the schools in, in the France. schools in France, or the banning of religious criticism in public speech and discourse in England. Mm. Um, Yeah, you're right that that's a substantial difference between the U.S. and the rest of the Western world, but I'll go to the wall arguing that in that case, we're right and you're not. (laughs) In some of these other cases, I think you're right and we're not. So, you know, there's parody. Right. Historically, there are also many examples of our differences, such as when Sitting Bull and his victorious army left the battle and came to Canada. He was not great credit to you guys, let me tell you. He was not met by our army, but by a few mounted police who informed them that he had to act peacefully and follow our laws, Mm -hmm. which he did. Link. Anyway, no need to read this long email out. Too late. Too late. (laughs) Although I would appreciate a mention, but more so a thought on your behalf how the concept that Canadians and Americans are presently the same is an error. Our cultures are are different, as culture is more than our lifestyles, which are basically identical, but our values as a nation, which are not. Nonetheless, I really appreciate Antithesis. Thanks for your great work. Bestest. David in Israel. Yeah, and thanks very much to the for the email, David. I still hold on to my contention that we are less different in values than it looks from north of the border, um, at least in spots, and that the um, the Canadian consensus that you're lauding is not nearly so um, not nearly so ironclad as you're making it out to be, particularly as recent elections when the 
when your equivalent of the Republican Party has taken power and started to put values voters and make things like abortion and trafficking in pornography a political issue up there where it had never been before. Um, there, There isn't ideological uniformity either in Canada or in the United States. And in general, the more liberal parts or the more economically developed parts of the United States have more in common with the more economically developed parts of Canada than the less economically developed parts have with those of us on the left coast in the U.S. Yeah, it's it's been interesting. Um, you know, I've had a fair amount of contact with Canada having lived in, in Michigan for most of my life. And uh, the difference in attitudes between different parts of Canada that I've Very seen. Very striking. It is. Uh, you go to Brantford in the central um, portion of the Ontario Peninsula, mm-hmm. and there's a very, very strong um, anti-American bias there, yes. um, partly because Brantford was pretty much where the Loyalist holdouts got besieged a few times during the Revolutionary War, so mm-hmm. they're holding a grudge. Um, but you know, I talked to some of my friends in Toronto, and... They just are total, you know, this whole idea of an antipathy between the United States and and Canada is is foreign to them. And British Columbia identifies much more strongly as part of the Pacific Northwest Mm -hmm. as a geographic region than it does as Canadian. Right. uh, Versus Seattle down south of the border. Our geography and our economics has a lot more to do with our culture than does our national identity, Mm -hmm. I think. But is a very good email, and um, I'm glad you sent it because I don't want to be misconstrued as saying Canadians and Americans are exactly the same, or basically exactly the same, because we're not. We've got cultural differences. I just I continue to think that the cultural differences between some parts of Canada and some parts of the U.S., not just lifestyle but deep culture, are less pronounced than they are between different parts of the U.S. So I think a free trade zone between um, between the three North American nations is not only inevitable, but desirable. Mm-hmm. And as a PS, that also shows the difference in culture is that Canadians do not wear their religion on their sleeve, as do the Americans, mm-hmm. especially in the public or political realm. In Canada, we also have those who are more fundamentalist or evangelical, yet like abortion and other similar issues. They do not invade the public domain and certainly not the political one. We find the role of religion in politics very strange when observing our American cousins. You're not the only one. Especially considering your constitutional separation of church and state. And oddly, I think that's the reason. In the rest of the Western world, including Canada, there is an established church, and in most Western nations, it still receives tax uh, subsidies. It's hard to take your religion seriously when your government is pushing it. Right. In the U.S., the um, the churches have had to compete with one another and have had to get very, very good at winning converts because they're in a marketplace that doesn't that doesn't exist in the same way in other Western nations. Which enhances the natural evangelistic tendencies of Christianity yes, to the does. nth degree. And it certainly does. There's there's even a phenomenon they have around here called sheep stealing, where one Christian sect believes that members of another denomination are doomed for hell, so they go on mission trips to other churches and other church functions to, you know, to win uh, the poor pagan Catholics back to the bosom of Jesus and that sort of thing. But yeah, I think it's because of our constitutional separation of church and state. It's one of those interesting unintended consequences. I should note, however, that the idea that religion can't have a role in, in 
the you know in public discourse is mm -hmm. one that is beginning to be questioned in some parts of the West. Uh, mm -hmm. Tony Blair has recently started a foundation in cooperation with Yale to yeah. open the idea of um, starting the, an international discourse um, between different members of different religions in the hope of you seeing how religion can be used as a force for good in the world. Right. And, uh, yeah, I wish they'd read more European history. Religion as a veil for public discourse is something I think that we've got wrong here. I think we've got it wrong because we haven't had to deal with religious wars like they had to deal with in Europe for thousands of years. Religion makes remarkable political camouflage for all manner of mischief. And you don't have to be stupid and you don't have to be insincere and you don't have to be a bad person to believe what your pastor tells you. It's very easy for someone in a position of religious authority to imply to someone who's a devout believer that their personal opinions on issues somehow come from God. It doesn't have to even be a deliberate deception. Church cultures just reinforce that kind of groupthink, as do activist cultures of all kinds. Mm -hmm. Although I will push back a little bit in pointing out that the, the civil rights movement was largely driven by the you know the religious community and interesting it was driven by a strange uh, a strange coalition of the religious and the marxist communities in the united states mm -hmm. um and marxism is uh for all intents and purposes a political religion and yeah it's 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 a wonderful interesting accident of history um that that it came about that way but in the u.s i don't think it could have come about any other way the the language of segregation was so deeply steeped in religious tradition that the revolt had to come from within the church or had to um at least in the black communities it had to come from within the church um i think in the northern white communities coming from the political left gave it a sort of cachet and credence that it wouldn't have gotten if it came from any other place too um but yeah no you're right it's it's not always a bad thing um in its results i just have problems with it in principle because sloppy thinking keep up the great work your talent intelligence opinions and hard work are extremely impressive and yes my parallel between antithesis and beethoven's third and fifth still holds bestest david in israel thank you very much david this one is from steve rickyberger Ah. Hey, Dan, before I start off, I want to say that I've really been enjoying Antithesis Book 1 so far. I know I got into the game late, and I'm not fully caught up yet, but it's been great. He then goes a little bit further, talks about some other stuff, and then he says, Antithesis has jumped toward the top of my must-listen as far as patio books. Anyway, keep up the great work. Woo! Thank you, Steve. And Steve is the host of Geek Cred, the uh, really cool podcast at www.geekcred.com. Very glad to have you on board. From James Hastings. Dear Dan, it was great to meet you this afternoon at the Phoenix. Thanks for the writing tips. On the way home, I listened to Antithesis up to episode 6, more before bedtime. I really appreciate your efforts in making the sound in your podcast so rich and vibrant. It's obvious that you spend have spent time in learning your craft. It shows. Again, thanks, and I hope to see you again soon. James, that's another one. I met him at the uh, at the pub crawl. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we uh, we sat and we talked for quite a while about uh, writing and whatnot. Thank you for writing in, James. I'm very glad to hear from you again. That actually brings up an interesting point. I've had um, a number of emails over the last few weeks commenting um, on the audio quality. New listeners um, 
like who like Evo Terra did after the first episode saying, Hey, hey asshole, the first episode sounds like shit. And well yes, it does. <laughs> and also um asking about the radical uh wide pans that happen in some of the uh, episodes. Which is evidently a problem for people who listen with one earbud in. Um, there's been some confusion over whether that's mono in one ear or a stereo mix. Um, so I'm gonna take uh, take both of those on because I've heard I've heard that from too many both of those from too many people to even start reading all the things here. Um, the first four episodes of Antithesis, the sound quality is way below par for me. I know it. I was working on a new setup, and it doesn't sound very good. So when I get done with the rest of the run, I'm going back and remixing actually the whole series. I've been keeping notes on things that I didn't like but didn't have time to perfect being on a weekly release schedule. So before this goes up on Patio Books, there's going to be a remix done so that it all sounds consistently at the quality level that it's at now that I've had a lot of time to learn all the new toys and tools that I'm using. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like this one comment about episode 13 where the character William only mm-hmm. comes through in the left channel and the person who posted that, D. May, is actually deaf in that ear. Right, and that's the other thing is um, on some of these I'm using... I'm using the stereo imaging to help give you positions of things in the room. But um, for some people, that's uh, been proving a problem. It was a problem for Pip Ballantyne, who can only listen with one earbud in at work. I've gotten a few other comments that uh, you know, people listen at work where they can't have two earbuds in. So the other thing I'm going to do is I'm going to release a mono mix where everything is remixed for... Um, the same, so you get the same data in both ears all the time, so that you can listen with one earbud in. That's also coming at the end of the run. Um, it'll just take a little more time to do than I have right now. But um, for those of you who have expressed concern or irritation, I'm sorry about the irritation, but um, there will be a fix for you at the end of the show here. All right. Uh, this is another email from David in Israel. Just two more quick questions, if I may. You frequently mention further books in the Antithesis series. Could you please mention on any planned, no, I won't hold you to it, future releases? Also, are there any plans for printed books? Bestest, David. Yes, uh, the plan is to release book two, which is Free Will and Other Compulsions, on September 9th, 2009, in, in uh, audiobook form, the same form that you're listening to now. And as far as printed releases, right now I'm talking with a publisher who is interested in the book. At the moment, the deal is far too nascent to comment on at length or to give any names. But I have high hopes that we might see print in the next couple of years. And if it goes on too long without seeing print, I might be a little more radical and self-puppet or make my own Kindle version. But mm-hmm. for the moment, uh, print plans are in progress and the publishing world moves slowly. Indeed it does. That's one of the reasons why I haven't really been pushing to get Metamore City into print, because I'm looking at the state of the uh, publishing industry and seeing a world where, <laughs> in a world where 85% of <laughs> in books... In a world where 85% of books never see the light of day. <laughs> where 95% of books never pay off their advances. <laughs> One man is staying the hell away from the situation <laughs> until it sorts itself out. Now, see, Chris, you, you actually really should consider doing Kindle versions because Metamore City is good shit, and doing Kindle versions, you're not going to have to 
deal with the um, the strange intellectual property issues you've got in a shared world. Mm. How um, so? Well, because you have the right to what you've written, you can publish it, mm-hmm. and you're not going to be negotiating with a company that wants to buy the world from you. You're just right. going to be selling the current uh, the current bit that you own. Yeah. Yeah, I can't sell the world anyway. So. Exactly, because you don't own it. Right. Exactly, and that's we've talked about that before, and mm-hmm. it just occurred to me that doing something like that for you, that would make business sense. Yeah, that could be. I'll have to look into that. This one is from Hawk Hunt. You may remember that he's our Australian listener. Oh, yes, the Australian! Hi, Dan. I've just been listening to Predestination over the past few days, and I have to hear and you discuss it with Chris Lester and his feedback shows at the Sex Roundtable. I loved your Aussie accent reading my review of Metamore City. Full marks. Thank you very much, sir. Also, regarding the comments toward the end of episode six, the cult sex happens before Pip shows up? That just seems wrong somehow. Actually, I got that wrong. The cult sex happens after Pip shows up by about two episodes. <laughs> but um, she's not involved. Unfortunately, she's not involved. However, she has agreed uh, to uh, star as the lead in Down From Ten, so it's that's going to be a very saucy piece. <laughs> by the way, I don't know if Chris has passed this on or not, but I'm really enjoying the discussion episodes you three have been doing in this feed. I assume similar feedback shows will come along for Predestination too. I hope so. In fact, you're listening to one right now. Indeed. <laughs> Keep it up. I'll be caught up soon. Hawk Hunt, New South Wales, Australia. Excellent. Thank you. It's good to have you on board. I was wondering who my other Australian listener was. I've got two. Uh-huh. One of them is someone I know. And uh-huh. I've been wondering who the other one is. Now I know. Indeed. <laughs> Tell your friends I want to take over Australia, too. i got to beat Sigler to Australia. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, if you've ever played Risk, it's really hard to knock somebody out of Australia <laughs> once right. you hold it. Besides, kangaroo meat just tastes so damn good. Um, okay, this one is from Stephen Nelson. Oh, Stephen is the head of Bacon TV, which is the, uh, the TV channel that runs in the hotels at Bacon every year. Ah. Hi, um, Dan. You, you met him at the, uh, at the Sigler event on the 4th. Oh, that's the, him. Uh, okay. Yeah, he was dressed kind of like number six from The Prisoner. Okay. That's Steven. Steven's a really cool guy. Gotcha. Hi, Dan. Great to run into you at Scott Sigler's reading, and thanks very much for introducing me to the other podcast novelists in attendance. I've now caught up to the latest episode of Antithesis, and I'm enjoying it greatly. You'd mentioned that you might have something to show on BCTV this year. If you do, please let me know. Otherwise, I'll just look forward to seeing you at Con. Hello, Stephen. Thank you for writing in. I'm glad I've got you hooked. And uh, yeah, if I've got the time, I'll have um, the short film I did for Hutch's Obsidian actually finished. <laughs> Only a year late. <laughs> but um, but uh, you, you're definitely welcome to show that on BCTV, and I'll keep you posted on that. From Scott Roche of SpiritualTramp.com. Uh, one of my favorite debate partners at the moment. And one of my favorite minions. Ah, it's your fault. <laughs> Scott is a Scott is a great guy. He he asked Nobilis and myself and a bunch of other podcasters and um troublemakers to participate in a online blog discussion uh, back and forth about whether or not um Yeah. Yeah, is religious passion dangerous? Yeah. We had a lot of fun with that one. Hmm. 
So he says, so I listened to episode one of you work while cleaning the kitchen, and all I got to say is well done. I think I might enjoy your work, which, of course, is a problem because it gives me one more podcast <laughs> to listen to. Thanks. <laughs> when I get to the four episode mark, if I'm still interested, I will play your promo in my podcast novel. Oh, uh, damn. Now I've got to listen to his. <laughs> I try not to endorse something I don't enjoy, although I don't think that will be a problem here. I appreciate that. And I will have to say that... Um, uh, Stephen Kilbride from Tea and Chat mm-hmm. has said that he enjoys uh, Archangel a lot, cool. and he's an atheist. So cool. I've been I've been kind of avoiding it partly because I don't have any time, and partly because I avoid religious, religious fiction fi- stuff that's branded religious fiction. Yeah, and I love a lot of very religious writers, but mm-hmm. usually when something gets the Christian brand name put on it. It means oh, not heavens. good enough to pass in the secular marketplace. I have the same issue with it, to be honest. Christian mm-hmm. artists frequently are not held to the same standards of quality. Anyway, off my soapbox, back to Scott's <laughs> letter. If you have space in your podcatcher of choice, I'd love it if you give Archangel a listen. www.archangelnovel.com slash blog. Okay, Scott, I will listen this week. You won't find it preachy, I promise. I'm halfway through part two. Part one is Archangel Valley of the Shadow, and part two is Archangel Legion. Well, if I find it preachy, remember, I know where you live. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I got some feedback from Chris Lester on a short story I did on Sculpting God called Lilith. Ah, um, Lilith. I got the feedback in person, so I... Since I have him here captive in the studio, strapped down to my couch, force-feeding him wine, Mm. I thought I would uh, get him to talk about uh, what he thought about Lilith. Mm. Lilith? I really... I always enjoy stories that um, sort of do the whole Rashomon thing, where you are inverting the perspective and Mm. looking at a, a story you thought you understood. You look at it from a different angle... And you see a completely different story. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar, Lilith is a character in the Jewish Talmud who was Adam's first wife, who Adam threw out of the garden because she wouldn't uh, she wouldn't uh, be on bottom during sex. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's the uh, she's the first feminist, and in Jewish literature, this is a very bad thing. And so she's <laughs> she becomes the goddess of crib death and all sorts of other nasty things. Or demoness, depending upon how or you Or demoness, depending yeah. on which version of the story you read. I love getting to see characters that we think we know from another point of view. And it was really interesting to see Lilith's perspective on why she was evicted. And I particularly was interested in her attitude towards Eve. Um, in all of its complexity. The fact that she, on one hand, resented this creature, mm-hmm. and on the other hand, really pitied her, and um, identified with her as a female. Mm-hmm. And the idea that she would have sort of orchestrated the rebellion as a way of securing... Eve's independence in spite of herself is a really interesting little wrinkle there. And you've also got the um the the part that she's quite taken with her. Yeah. Also. Yeah. I mean it's it's that that added little thing of 
you know, being both attracted and repulsed by someone who is so submissive that they will be whatever you Mm -hmm. shape them to be. You know, I, I can, I can sympathize with that a little bit. Mm. You know, the, uh, you know, the whole, the, that whole idea of that, that somebody who's so pliable is, is just, you know, that that's, that's revolting, but at the same time, it makes you wonder what you could do with them and how far you could push that. And uh, that's as much as I'm going to say on that subject. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, you want to shovel, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. definitely a very complex character. I also really liked her relationship to the almighty. Mm. The fact that, um, after Lilith leaves, that you know that the Lilith leaves of her own, um, mm-hmm. of her own volition, yes, and that the voice is trying to woo her back and wants her to reconcile mm-hmm. with Adam and with right. the established order, which is actually, by the way, the way it plays out in the Talmud. Okay, and then I yeah, you because know, I haven't read the original text, mm-hmm. but the idea that she has a relationship with with the voice. That the voice still uh, cherished her and saw her as precious and wanted to seek reconciliation rather than, um, you know, division. But at the same time, would not violate either her free will or Adam's mm-hmm. in order to force that to happen. Mm-hmm. And so, in order to preserve the race goes to goes to plan b in right. essence so it's like the the fact that her her free will was so sacrosanct and adams was too mm-hmm. that he would that 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 um the almighty would pursue a completely different tack tack in order to make sure that the the breed survived mm-hmm. that really struck me as as um you know a core emotional truth and the 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 uh the preciousness of of um free will is very important to me in my understanding of theology mm-hmm. and why God allows things to happen the way that he does and so it's it was very um satisfying for me to see that being played out even in the garden that you know that this this whole scenario didn't go off perfectly Mm-hmm. But it went off the way it was supposed to because free will was preserved, and that mm. was the single most important thing that about human the human existence. You know, everything else is secondary to the fact that we, that we have that power of choice that we are like God, knowing good and evil, and able to distinguish between the two. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always thought of well, I can't say always, but in for for. A lot of years now, I've thought of the Garden of Eden as not the ideal state of man, but as the the necessary starting point. Yeah, that, the Jewish theology <clears throat> holds it as a um, as a metaphor for uh, a teenager coming into his own as an adult. And I can buy into that rather than as a fall. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to say so it's a Jewish story that is kind of co opted from Babylonian <clears throat> mythology. So. Mm-hmm wanted to keep the Jewish read on, on the garden story while bringing in the Babylonian chaos and order yeah. primal mythology and mixing that all in to see what would happen. Yeah. I mean, I, cause I think that, 
ultimately the story of humanity um, is of starting from a state of ignorance and um, discovering knowledge and the, the pain that comes along with it. And then once you've got it, well, what are, okay, so we've got knowledge and we've got the pain that comes with knowledge. Now what do we do about it? And so <laughs> that you have, the only solution is that you have to become mature. Mm -hmm. You have to grow up and learn how to use the knowledge and power that that comes with it responsibly, mm -hmm. yep. which I think is the point. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, what have we got next? Is that all the printed feedback? Yep, that's it. Killer. Okay, we've got some audio feedback now. <laughs> hey, Dan, this is Michael Lamangelo. Um, I had a thought, a really twisted thought, after listening to the last couple dealing ins with you and Chris Lester. Um, what would happen if the Children of Light, uh, you know, kind of had a little meeting with? Um, let's say the most fundamental cultish uh, sect in Chris's universe. I mean, what would a short story like that look like? You know, it's just an interesting thought. You know, um, I'd be interested to hear interested to hear yours and Chris's thoughts on that. All right, look forward to future episodes and can't wait to see how the book ends. Oh boy, what do we do with that? <laughs> hey, Michael. Um, actually, the Children of Light would fit in really well into the religious community of Metamorph City because the uh, you've got the two main religious groups, the Ecclesiasts and the Mariahists, who are both um, predominantly monotheistic religions focused around one major creator god. But then you've got the Universalist cults, and these are a large number of relatively small um, but philosophically intertwined uh, cults that are all oriented around the idea that the creator of the universe divided itself into a bunch of pieces in order to understand itself, and that the universe is the embodiment of the creator attempting to understand creation by uh, to understand existence through differentiating itself. And so, very similar to the Children of Light. Mm hmm. So you've got these um, different cults that each are dedicated to specific aspects of the creator. They try to embody those aspects of the creator because they believe that the fragment of the creator's soul that is inside of them is associated with that precept or that concept or that ideal it's very like hindu high theology actually and so they hope that eventually all the different pieces of the creator's soul will attain self-awareness and that the creation will be reborn perfectly this time because it will know what it's doing and so cool. that's what they're working towards but yeah, children of light would fit in pretty well so you'd either have a, a nice big potluck or an orgy or something like that mm-hmm yeah, they'd get along really well with the hedonist cult, I think, <laughs> you know, which are dedicated to the pleasure principle mm. and its embodiments. Yeah, the Children of Light's hedonism is actually a very, of much more of a group bonding flavor than of a um, mm. dedication to pleasure flavor. Gotcha. Yeah, it'll be interesting when we get to see a little bit more of the universalist faiths being expressed in Metamorph City. We've only seen little glimmers of them um, thus far, 
And the, yeah. Yeah. And the children mm-hmm. of light have a very large role to play in the coming books. Mm. Um, they actually, in a, in a way that uh, hopefully will shock the hell out of everybody, they become pivotal to the unfolding of the series. Um, so it'll be a lot of fun as we get deeper into uh, their strange little twisted world. Yeah, but, uh, they and of be... course there's the Morton Knights too. Oh yeah, oh, they're going to be so much fun. Yeah, the the Children <laughs> of Light actually, um, you know, if they if the the fallen gods of Metamore City found them, they would be like, oh, you worship <laughs> aliens? Well, hey, <laughs> funny you should mention it. <laughs> Let me nice. tell you about my cult. <laughs> Okay, next audio feedback. Let's see who we got next. Hey, this is Luna Shadow. Um, just wanted to make an observation. I um, I listened to all the episodes uh, just uh, yesterday, and I noticed something that nobody else has mentioned for uh, regarding the Hartmans. Um, in one of the episodes, uh, it talks about Alyssa's stretch marks. My guess is that they um, they lost a kid along the way in one of their missions. Um, and they both blame each other uh, somehow, and that is what is actually causing the rift between the Hartmans. Now I feel like a total schlub for not actually spotting that when it was mentioned. <laughs> you talk about arming, you know, putting up stuff on Chekhov's mantelpiece. Oh yeah, well, there's a lot of yeah, and congratulations, Lunar Shadow, on being the first person to spot it. There are actually quite a few clues dropped throughout the book about what the underlying issue between them is and we don't get to find the whole story out until book two but she's in a she's in a an age where you don't actually have to carry scars and she's still keeping them tells you something i'm surprised that they even have to carry babies you know you well, think uh, that they, they have uterine replicators by now well they don't have to but it's expensive not to ah okay but um yeah that's uh congratulations on spotting that and that is a huge plot point will become very important in book two, but I don't force you to guess. I actually do finally tell you the backstory in book two before it becomes pivotally important. So you'll just have to wait and see. (laughs) I'm having so much fun doing my evil laugh today. (laughs) (laughs) When do you not? (laughs) That's not the evil laugh. That's the giddy laugh. There you go. Okay. Uh, let's see. Yay! I can get my feedback in. Uh, <clears throat> this is Rose, um, also Myra Cheskis on Twitter, leaving feedback. Yay! Um, I love Antithesis. Stumbled onto you through Chris Lester's and his Metamorph City. What? Um, loving it. Um, I especially love in the beginning where you get you, where you're talking about all the poker and all the poker analogies. I don't know poker at all, and I was still able to follow it, and I really appreciate Excellent. that. I followed a few other things where they had poker, and I was completely lost. So um, thank you. And um, I found your narration, especially early on, a little fast and a little hard to follow at yep. spots, but I think that's toned down. Just a little bit of feedback on that. And um, loved the way you handled the senator's speech in the last app. Sent chills down my spine. Uh, hope to see you at the pub yes. crawl. Bye. <laughs> um, yeah, Rose is another one I met at the last pub crawl, and she's absolutely adorable. 
And uh, yeah, it's the first couple episodes. I'm narrating way too fast for anyone to really understand what's going on. And that's another one of those things that's slated for the remix. Mm-hmm. Is re-recording the first couple episodes now that I've got my narrator voice down for this particular project. Um, and uh, I'm really, really, really glad you liked the senator's speech. I... I loved the way Nathan Lowell delivered it so much that I was like listening to it over and over and over after it was remixed. Chris was over here that evening. He was like, again, again, are you nuts? I don't think so. I don't remember that. <laughs> or was that Kitty that was doing that? Was that was Kitty, I think. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Because well, I, I thought that it was actually a very nice, nicely delivered <laughs> speech and Senator Shelley was... Uh, I, he's which, a very interesting character. There is a uh, another feedback from Tristan in that pile that we didn't read that talks about um, talks about Shelley's speech. Hey Dan, it's Tristan uh, from the internet. First of all, I just want to ask and make sure that I am not being creepy or anything by the amount of feedback <laughs> that I've probably supplied to the show by this point. Of or, course uh, you are. Yours and but what's what's fame without a Christmas good stalker? Shows. I really want to know that I'm just a fan. I'm not, like, stalking your house. In fact, I live on an opposite <laughs> side of the continent, so don't be afraid of me. I'm just kind of like uh, Nobilis, where, you know, if I'm watching, if I'm listening to your podcast, you'll know oh. it. <laughs> and I was, really, I was really taken aback by the most recent episode of Antithesis, and I look forward to the one that's supposed to be in the next couple days. Uh, but this one, I was really, really interested in how you used, the, how you brought out the real meaning of terrorism, if you know what I mean. You, a single act of violence, a single, this um, bomb, it caused an entire trust structure in the story breaking down. And it led to people who were extremely close causing a lot of pain to each other. And it's just, hopefully, it looks like it's going to be getting worse, which, uh, of course, makes for a better story, but, of course, says more about, I don't know, says more about a lot of things. I'm not going to make any comments about the story, because I really am not a person who makes predictions about storylines, so just know that. Smart man. Thank you. Uh, I'm sorry for being so ubiquitous. If you guys want me to cut back on the feedback, just say it, and I will. Um, anyways, until next time, your big fan, Tristan Johnson. Okay, Tristan, I'll make you a deal. I won't bitch about the amount of feedback you send if you don't uh, continue being self-effacing about it. Just send in your questions and your comments. It's really cool. Oh, true meaning of terrorism. Yeah, um, Caleb Carr has a very interesting uh, military history of terrorism called... Is he the guy who did The Alienist? He's the guy who did The Alienist. His that day, was a damn good book. His day job is as a military historian. Wow. But yeah, if you guys have not um, read The Alienist or listened to the audiobook version, excellent, excellent book. I was never really into the whole turn of the century 19th century to 20th century um period historical fiction before oh but, but he nailed it so oh my goodness i was there he brought out the new york city of the 1890s in a way that was just chilling really chilling yeah yeah he really did it's um it's one of the best historical novels i've ever read 
Um, but his day job is as a military historian, and he wrote a book called "The Lessons of Terror: A History of the uh, A History of Warfare Against Civilians." Mm. In which he um, he looks at how um, the use of terrorism, both by uh, guerrilla groups and by governments, has operated over the course of history, and how the um, the insights of military philosophers such as von Clausewitz and Machiavelli and Sun Tzu have informed, and some in some cases very badly informed, those stratagems. Mm. Uh, the sole. Um, Relevant property of terrorism is to destabilize. Yeah. No country has ever fallen because of a terrorist campaign defeating them. But many countries have uh, shattered because of a terrorist campaign undermining the trust structure in the society. And it works on a micro level and on a macro level. And that's exact. You, you nailed it in one. That's exactly what I was going for with that bombing there. Yeah, I think of like the the partisans who uh, made life a living hell for the Nazis in Eastern Europe, mm-hmm. or um, the uh, you know the Afghani terrorists who who kept the Soviet army on its toes and finally made them give up, or the mm-hmm. Viet Cong in Vietnam. Yeah. yeah, the the basic element that is required for any culture to function is trust. And something that shatters the trust between strangers mm. is something that is capable of bringing an empire to its knees um, in a very, very destructive fashion. But the um, we were talking uh, earlier on about how um, totalitarian states aren't sustainable. Mm. This is one of the reasons a totalitarian state operates in um, under the auspices of a complete lack of social trust. And under those conditions, trade breaks down, culture breaks down, and ultimately the machinery of government grinds to a halt and nothing will get done. Well, a lack of trust in anything except the people in power. No, because if the people in power don't, don't trust anyone under them and they don't trust one another – then there is no recipro- uh, then that lack of trust is reciprocated from the bottom up mm. and ultimately the uh, the culture crumbles under its under the inertia of its own distrust mm. okay so we got more voice feedback here it's so cool to have voice feedback after all this time. You I guys know. have started calling the line. I love you. Please keep doing it. And leave reviews on iTunes and Podcast Alley and Podcast Pickle. Please, 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 please. Okay. Um, not that I'm a pathetic begging mess or anything. But... Hey, guys. It's Tristan Johnson again. Of course, I'm pretty sure by this point half the freaking feedback show is just me. But... No, not really. I don't know. Maybe I'm underestimating how popular Chris Luster is, but... I love you guys so much. I'm your crack-addicted metamorph monkey, and I can't stop making feedback. I'm like Nobilis. I like making feedback. Yes, but uh, you've underestimated the power of Patty Heaney. Yeah. <laughs> or Mildred <laughs> Katie. For filling up lovely hours of feedbackiness. Anyways, uh, two things about the most recent episode of Predestination I listened to, episode 17, which was very, very fun because it's a major turning point in the plot, but uh, one of the things that I was really happy with is Nathan Lowell! Ah, I love Nathan Lowell. So do we. Nathan Lowell rocks! 
I can't wait to get him into Metamorph yeah, City. Yeah, is he? Are you going to get him into Metamorph City? He's going to play the part of a like a, a wealthy nobleman, like probably a count in Excellent. book two. Oh, he could so do that. Oh yeah. I was so happy when I asked him. I said, "Can you like maybe possibly do a Massachusetts accent?" And he's like, "Funny you should mention that. I lived there for a long time." Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "Really?" And he's like, well, here, check this out. And he sends me Bill Shelley, and I'm like, oh, my God, he got it perfect. Yeah, I sent him a piece of British-received pronunciation to mm-hmm. play around with because that's what I'd like for this character, and I, th- I think he's going to do a good job with it. And it was great. I was so excited to see hear Nathan Lowell talk, and he was the perfect voice for the, uh, you know, staunch Republican-esque, uh, you know, big politician who... You know, dislikes non-believers and materialists and what else do you say? He said a whole bunch of stuff, but it was really funny. Now, this cracks me up. Yeah, I mean, the very <laughs> idea of a Republican senator from Massachusetts. Tristan, you obviously are Trist- from Canada yeah. because you clearly don't understand American politics. <laughs> but what's really funny is I got that from Tristan and then from a friend of mine who's a Democrat, I got or fr- who's a Republican, I got, "Oh, great Democratic senator there." Yeah. Everyone everyone wants Bill Shelley to be from the other party. It's fabulous. Well, I just assumed that he was a Democrat because he was from Massachusetts. And he's clearly patterned on Ted Kennedy. Exactly. Um, but no, he's uh <laughs> That but but it's actually interesting to me because the bag of tricks that the bag of rhetorical tricks that politicians use is a common one. Mm-hmm. Um, you notice how in that speech, Bill Shelley managed to uh, get down on drug legalization, on um, gun ownership, on um, non traditional marriage, on non traditional marriage, on uh, free thought and uh, non traditional religion. He basically hit all the bullshit social issues from both sides of the fence. Mm-hmm. But listeners are only hearing the ones from the other guys when they hear that. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, that that was just a centerpiece of authoritarian demagoguery. And, you know, for me, I'm a libertarian, so I, I can't stand either one of the parties. So I, I saw... You know, the worst aspects of, of both of them in, in Shelley. The worst aspects packaged in the most appealing way, which is yeah. exactly what I was going for. He's, yeah, it's um, political demagogy. It has the same accent no matter what party it's from, even if it's from the Libertarian Party. Well, I'm not a Libertarian large L. I'm a Libertarian ah. small L. <laughs> <laughs> Other than that... Uh, what else do I want to add for you? I wanted to say, yes, when you told me about Singh, Greg Singh, I didn't know you wanted a Punjabi accent. I would have I would have done that for you. I could have done that very well. I have lots of friends who are Indian. I have no idea why, but I have made tons of Indian friends. But for some reason, I was told to do Mohinder Suresh, and Mohinder Suresh has a very English accent, not a very Indian accent. That's but true. That's different. That's true. Um, yeah, and I I hunted all over the place for Greg Singh. Uh, TD0013 did a kick-ass take for me that just didn't work with the character. You did a pretty good take for me that didn't work with the character. I tried to do it a couple different ways and didn't work for it. 
I was literally down to my final mix down using temp tracks of myself and just wishing, hoping, calling out to the universe that I wouldn't have to use my own voice for Greg Sing. And Chris pops by for one thing or another and he said, oh, what you working on? And I said, well, here's this script and I don't have a voice for him. And he's like, I just leaned over and started reading it. And he did it and he did it perfect. He did it. Is a Punjabi accent, but scaled back and anglicized just enough that you would expect it out of someone who was third generation who had grown up in a ghettoized immigrant community, which is exactly who Greg Singh is. Um, and so I was very, very happy with that. And I'm also very, very happy that I get to torture you with uh, Greg Singh's future now. <laughs> Which is just another way of saying that my Indian accent is really not all that good. So, <laughs> But it's bad in exactly the right way. There you go. <laughs> um, oh, man, it's going to be so much fun. <laughs> I am looking forward to playing the character. He's got a, a very snarky... Um, attitude that really appeals to me when he he talked about Kali taking up crochet that <laughs> that was hilarious so yes, yes. i can't wait to see how many more of those lines i get to say uh because sing usually entails that they are of the sub-tribe of india uh, the indian small ethnic population of punjabs which means that they're punjabis and they have a particular accent I have a friend who's from northern India, and he always likes to tell me the difference. Anyways, that is besides the point, because I do know for a fact, not like a thesis or anything, that I am going to try. I'm going to do... I am going to get into Predestination Book 2, whether, you know, whether you like it or not, I'm trying out, and I'll do a much better job than I did last time, and... Uh, don't worry about the quality of the mic because this is just my bullshit webcam camera because I don't really want to go and do all the crazy conversions and stuff. Either ways, keep it up. Uh, I know I wrote I wrote you a little short story. I don't know if you got to it yet, but it was it's only about a thousand words long. It's really cool. Um, yeah, they, uh, um, I will be putting out a casting call for minor parts in Free Will when that comes up, and actually. There's gonna. I'm gonna. I don't know how I'm gonna handle this, but if all of you could keep your ears open for, peop for women who can do uh, twelve to fifteen year old girls, that would be good. There's gonna be a very major character in Free Will, who and um in the subsequent book Predation, who um is who starts out at twelve in Free Will and goes to fifteen in Predation. And I'll need someone who can do that voice with a French Canadian accent. Um, anyway, that's that's a long other story. On the issue of the uh, fanfic you sent me, Tristan, I read it, and really, it wouldn't take very much for you to remove my universe for it and to uh, work it up as your own piece. I'm really glad that I'm inspiring people. I really don't want to deal with fan fiction um, out in the wild yet. I don't, I, I've not uh, got this property published and sold, and I really don't want to have to be chasing down brand dilution stuff. Thank you very much for sending it to me rather than posting it online. I very much appreciate that. And it is an interesting story, and I really think you should rewrite it and remove the little bitty bits of my universe out of it and make your own thing with it because it's a good premise, and uh, you ought to run with it. I don't know if it's cool. I, I had fun with it. I wrote it in about 
three or four hours, and I thought you'd like to see it. Uh, and also, I have to get to work on writing uh, Metamore City short story for Chris Lester's uh, contest. So, I guess I'm going to get to that sometime in the near future. Thank you for making all this awesome content that, you know, occupies my daily commute and makes me go eek when I hear about all the cool things. Also, hmm, I guess since this is already a three minute long recording of me talking to you, I love <laughs> you guys so much. All right, have fun. Enjoy the rest of your feedback show. Thanks, Tristan. Thank you very much, Tristan. I look forward to seeing your Metamorcity fanfic, which as I believe everybody knows at this point we are doing a um <clears throat> short story contest for the summer for the uh space between the end of making the cut and the beginning of our triple threat launch of antithesis book two and metamore city season two and digital magic and digital magic oh boy that is going to be so much fun yeah next week chris and i are doing writing workshopping so that we can actually get ahead on all this stuff yeah, <laughs> I have a feeling we're going to need to do that quite a lot over the next few months. Well, we've got winter break, we've got spring break, and then we've got yeah. the summer. So uh, Yeah, but you're lucky. You've got one book to do in that time. I've got two. Ah, yes. Because <laughs> I still have to finish up Down From Ten and podcast it before yes. then. Actually, the way it's running, I'll probably start podcasting Down From Ten in early June, and the end of that will run simultaneous with the launch of Free Will. On the other hand, your work schedule is much more much more flexible than mine. <laughs> well, for the moment, by that time, it may not be. True. Well, thanks to everyone for uh, hanging around and listening to us. New episodes coming weekly. We're going until episode 27, at which point Antithesis goes on hiatus. And eight weeks later, Down From Ten begins. We're coming up on the end here, folks, and it's going to get even wilder from here on in. Send in feedback to dan at jdsawyer.net. Leave feedback on the blog at antithesis.jdsawyer.net. Listen, comment, leave reviews on iTunes and Podcast Alley and Podcast Pickle, and I'll be seeing you again very soon. And until then, remember... It isn't whether you win or lose. It's how you rig the game. Yep. <laughs>